the warnings had already been received. A massive hurricane passed by Cuba and was heading into the Gulf of Mexico. Flooding and damage were reported in Alabama and Louisiana. But Galveston, Texas, issued no warning. The Weather Bureau, the the forerunner to the National Weather Service, ignored the warnings from Cuba. They thought those people just don't know what weather's really like. The bureaucracy required approval from Washington before any local official could issue a hurricane warning. And the local official in Galveston, Isaac Kleins, he didn't believe a hurricane could hit Texas. See, all the hurricanes they had known before went up the Atlantic coast. So Galveston would surely be okay. Even as the storm surge hit Galveston, this barrier island with a mere five feet of clearance over the ocean, even as the waters began to rise, the sun was still shining, and so people assumed, well, just a little bit of flooding, we'll be fine. The last train on the island's causeway kept going, even through feet of water covering the tracks. But sadly, the train wasn't leaving the island. It was still bringing people to the island. The storm hit with a devastating ferocity. Isaac Kleins, the local weather official, who finally issued warnings but much too late, wrote later in the journal, Describing the house he was in coming down, he says, Among the lost was my own wife, who never rose again above the water. I was nearly drowned. I became unconscious, but I recovered. Though being crushed by the timbers of the house, I found myself clinging to my youngest child. They floated in the open sea for hours. More than 6,000 people died the worst natural disaster in American history, and no warning was issued. Many can be blamed for this. The warnings from Cuba went unheeded. Officials ignored reports from the other American coastal towns. Residents went about their daily business, some of them laughing at the rising waters until the storm hit. Ezekiel is sent by God with a warning. Ezekiel offers this parable that that the danger is coming, the storm is approaching. If you do not seek refuge, you will die. The parable Ezekiel offers is the story of a watchman, a familiar image for people in the ancient world, not merely in times of war, but perhaps at the harvest season, you'd have a watchman sitting on a tower. But, but certainly, if your city was being surrounded by an enemy, if you knew reports of the approaching army, you would have a watchman on the tower awake all night to sound the alarm. And God had actually already used this image with Ezekiel. Back in Ezekiel chapter 3, when, when he was first called to be a prophet, he was a 30-year-old man, a, the year in which he should have become a priest in the temple of the Lord. And yet he's 
called, commissioned to a different ministry. In exile, without a temple, he is commissioned as a spokesman. And God says to him, Son of man, I've made you. This is back in chapter 3. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning. Give them a warning. And now this image, which had been a private story for Ezekiel, is now publicly told to the people. If there is no warning issued, if the watchman sees the approaching danger but doesn't blow the horn, then sadly, people will be held guilty for their own sin, God says. But the watchman, if he issues no warning, then he will be guilty of their deaths. Now, if the watchman, if he, if he blows the horn, if he announces the enemy is approaching and, and people ignore him, then it's not his fault. It's their fault for, for failing to heed the warning. And so the story is simple. The parable is simple because that's what a watchman would do. I mean, in the ancient world, it, it mattered more than, than a watchman have good eyesight or be able to stay up all night. It mattered more that he was a man of integrity, that you believed he wouldn't flee at the first sign of danger, that he would stand his ground and he would issue the warning. But the surprise of this parable, see, the, the role of the watchman seems pretty straightforward. Danger comes, issue a warning. If you don't, you're guilty. But the surprise of this parable is that not that God appoints a watchman for the people of Israel. That makes sense. They should warn of the approaching danger. The surprise is, who is the danger? See, the, the people in exile may have thought it's, it's the watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem watching the armies of Babylon approach. They're the enemy here. No, who is the one that, that Ezekiel is supposed to warn them is coming? It's the Lord himself. The Lord appointed a watchman to warn his people that he is coming. The Lord is coming. And what is he coming to do? To judge his people for their sins. That's the warning that is brought. That's the shocking irony of the parable. God is the enemy in this little story. He is the one who, of whom a warning needs to be issued. God comes to judge sin. But immediately, immediately there will be objections. And so, so the, the warning should be issued from Ezekiel, and we know he heeds the warning because he wrote it down. He announced it to the people. The end of the chapter will describe that the people gather around him. So we know he heeds, he, he does his job. He sees the approaching danger. He knows God is coming in judgment, and so he sounds the alarm. But, but then there are objections that he must anticipate. So look at first, verse 10 as we see the first of the objections that the people will bring. God even tells Ezekiel in advance, this is what they're going to say. Our offenses our sins weigh us down. We're wasting away because of them. How then can we live? You see, the first objection is, a little late for the warning, Ezekiel. If you hadn't noticed, we're already in exile. We already live hundreds of miles away from, from the temple. There is no hope, and, and this is the, the tragic chapter of Ezekiel. Chapter 33 is where they, they finally get news. They, they know the Babylonian army has surrounded the city for months. But chapter 33 and verse 21 is when they, when they hear the news, the city has fallen. The city is destroyed. And so, so it seems like Ezekiel, 
the warning comes too late. We're here in exile. We are wasting away. And you can imagine people that, that, are, that are coming from Jerusalem. They've been in a city that's been under siege for more than a year, wasting away, physically wasting away. Now they've had to make a journey as essentially slaves of the Babylonians, a journey of five or six months across the empire. And they arrive. And so the people in Babylon say, you know what, it, maybe it would have been better to just have been killed in Jerusalem. Because to be here in exile, without hope. Our sins, our offenses have destroyed us, so how can we even live? That's the objection. Thanks for the warning, but it comes a little late, Ezekiel. Now remember, in Ezekiel's defense, he is with the people in exile. He was among the first of those deported by the Babylonians a a decade before, and it's been his role for the last five years these last 32 chapters, to warn the people again and again, turn from your sin. But but look at God's answer to this objection. That we're wasting away, there is no hope left for us. Look at God's answer in verse 11. Ezekiel is told, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? The objection of the people is there is no hope for us. And then you hear the answer. It's a gospel answer. This is good news for hopeless people. God says, turn from your ways. God declares the sovereign Lord, the one with all authority and power, the one with the the armies of heaven, he is the one who invites them to turn from their sin and live. And notice notice the, the promise that God rests this upon. He says to them, as surely as I live. This is a promise rooted in the in the very nature of God, his character as the living and active God. The people say, but there is only death. And God says, I am the God who lives. I am the source of life. I am your hope. And so turn, turn from your sins. See, at least in this objection of verse 10, the people understand the problem. Our offenses and sins weigh us down. So they've rightly identified the problem. They sinned against God, but they, they have not heard the solution. A solution which has been reminded to them through the the ministry of the prophets. Even even in Jerusalem, God hadn't left them without prophets. Isaiah is there pleading with the king to turn from his sin. And verse 11 offers us then that good news. And as, as Ezekiel continues then, as the command is given to him to go to speak to the, the, the countrymen, it's, it's answering that problem of sin. You need God's good news solution of of verse 11 because the solutions that we would bring ourselves, that humanity would bring, offer no solution at all. Look Look at the argument there in verses 12 and 13. The righteousness of the righteous man will not save him. Why? Because even the ones you would call righteous are men who disobey. 
And so the righteousness of the righteous man is not enough because he is one who disobeys. He is guilty, as you yourselves have admitted in verse 10. So your righteousness cannot save you. And so the people fall then into despair and say, well, then if, if there is no righteousness in us, then the verses continue, verses 14, 15, and 16, then the wicked man will think then there is no hope. I will surely die. That's the answer of, that's the problem of verse 10. How could we live? But God says, if, if he turns from his sin, if he does what is right, verse 15, if he gives back what he took, he returns what he has stolen, he follows the decrees that give life, then, verse 15, he will surely live. See, if you heed the warning of verse 12 to turn, turn from your evil ways, then you will live. Look at, look at the grand and glorious news of verse 16. None of the sins he has committed will be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He will surely live. See, the people are being told, your righteousness cannot save you, but your sinfulness, your wickedness, your brokenness, you can turn from it. And think of the, the example that even in his agony on the cross, Jesus gives to us. That if you merely turn and put your trust in Christ, there is hope for you. Remember that, that Jesus, and we're, we're told this in, in the Gospels, in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Jesus is crucified between two criminals, between two guilty insurrectionists. One of them mocks Jesus. But Jesus offers these words. He says in, in Luke 23, verse 34, as the, as the people, the criminals are nailed beside him, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We're told that Jesus is nailed to the cross. The soldiers are mocking him. And we're told in, in Luke 23 that one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. One of these condemned men said to Jesus, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. Save us. Mocking Jesus. But then there are these words of hope. Hope for wicked sinners, which means hope for you and for me. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. That's a man turning from his wickedness. A man who recognizes he cannot rely in his own righteousness. He understands the righteousness of the righteous man will not save him. For he is a man condemned, rightly condemned, he says, to die the worst death that the world has, has come up with, the death of a criminal on a cross. But he turns from his wickedness to find life, and then there are these words of promise from Jesus. Jesus answers this sinner. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. See, that's the promise that is offered to each one of us. That's what Ezekiel is saying. 
Do not rely on your own goodness. And, and, and don't you understand, these, these words are not merely spoken to people a thousand or, or several thousand years ago. These words are spoken to us because that's exactly the way you and I try and live our lives. If I can keep my life clean enough, good enough, then I'll be okay. And we kind of do it on a sliding scale. We make sure there are enough people kind of behind us in the bad line, and we think, well, I'm close enough to the front. Surely I'll, I'll, I'll get on. It's, it's like waiting in line at an amusement park, and you're sort of counting, like, am I going to get on this next line? And you're kind of counting the number of people in front of you, and you think, well, you know, based on the number of seats that I think are on this coaster, I think we're going to make it on. And that's what you and I do. We think, you know, if we're lined up according to righteousness, I think I'm close enough to the front of the line to get on. But don't you see what the scriptures are saying? No one in line gets on because of their own righteousness. If you're counting on your own righteousness, you will be condemned because you are a sinner. And so your only hope is to admit that, to admit your sin like the, the thief on the cross who turns to Christ, saying that, that he is rightly condemned to death, that, that the sinner is rightly condemned to death, but pleading for mercy, acknowledging Jesus to be the Son of God. And see, that's what Ezekiel's promises are pointing us forward to. He, he's not coming to the people and saying, you know what, let's raise up an army, let's overthrow Babylon, and let's, let's get back and rebuild that city. Even, even as, as Ezra and Nehemiah are sent back, that's not where the promises come. As we look at the rest of Ezekiel, he's going to offer promises that are so big they can't be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Not merely by rebuilding a temple, because he's imagining the glorious presence of God with his perfected people. It's a promise that only God can keep. He's looking forward to the day that you and I have seen, the day of Jesus' death, but he looks even beyond that, to the day of Jesus' return. When you and I, just as Ezekiel says, if, if you confess your sins, if you turn from them, then verse 16 back in Ezekiel 33, none of the sins that, that the, the repentant has committed will be remembered against him. If you turn from your sin, if you repent, then what you have done will be declared just and right. You will be made righteous, and you will surely live. That's the summary of the gospel. It, it echoes the words that we'd he, we hear from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, that we were sinners. When we confess our sin, then we are made righteous. Not with our own righteousness, but with the righteousness of Jesus himself. The, the Apostle Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, do you see the argument Paul is making? If you have put your trust in Christ, then you have been made new, and you have been given a mission. It's the mission of the watchman, isn't it? It's a message of reconciliation to go and warn others. So Paul continues. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And here is the glorious gospel truth, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took your sins, and Jesus gives you his righteousness. That's the, the hope that Ezekiel offers. 
that if you put your trust in Christ, then your sins won't be remembered anymore because why? They have been paid already by Jesus Christ. And if you've put your trust in Christ, then, then you will be remembered as one who is righteous. You can hear the promise that, that Jesus offers that, that today you have the hope of paradise. And so it means, it means there's an urgency in this message. The Apostle Paul says, we implore you, we beg you, listen to this message. Do you hear what God himself is saying back in verse, verse 11 of our chapter? Turn, turn from your sin. That's the warning of the watchman shouting at the top of his lungs. The shofar has been blown, the trumpet has sounded. God is coming. Turn and find forgiveness. That's the warning. And don't you see there are people in your life that will not hear that message unless you say it. So you have some friends and neighbors who will not listen to me say it. They, they won't walk into this room. And who has been sent? Paul says you've been sent. You have the message of reconciliation. I mean, think of it. God is saying the guilt will be on your head for not issuing the warning. Who? Today. Can you make a phone call to? I mean, the very first thing you do when you get home, before you push buttons on the microwave, who can you call today? Who is it in your life that needs to hear the gospel message? Who can you find tomorrow at work or in school and say, that there is, there's a warning I need to give to you? If you were there on the beaches of Galveston and you knew the hurricane was coming, you would run up and down the beaches telling people, get off the island, it is going to be destroyed. And if they had done that, if they had merely been inland, they would have survived. You see the danger that comes, the judgment of God, but you also in that have good news. I know exactly where we can go. I know where we will be safe from the storm. It's there to the cross because Jesus took your sins upon himself. And so put your trust in him. That's the warning that you and I need to give. That's the urgency of the message that we have as a church. But, but there's, there's still actually another objection here. We saw the objection in verse 10, but, but verse 17 gives us another objection. Again, one that feels rather contemporary. It's the kind of objection you hear, maybe the kind of objection you have. Look at verse 17. This is, this is what Ezekiel's countrymen will say. This will be their complaint. The way of the Lord is not just. It's a question about God's goodness, about God's power, about God's authority. It's the question you and I face when the phone rings with bad news. It's the question you and I face when you're invited to the, the funeral of a family member. It's, it's the kind of question we face every day. Does God care? Is God good? And so here, in exile, the people look at their situation and say, God's not even big enough to defeat Babylonian armies. What hope is there for us? And for you, it's not Babylonians that you fear. But there are things in your life that, that make you echo this statement. The way of the Lord is not just. That's the objection. 
But look at, look at God's response. Verse 17. Your countrymen say the way of the Lord is not just, but it is their way that is not just. I mean, God is essentially saying, you want to talk about goodness? We can compare goodness. We can compare power. That's, that's the game you want to play? You Israelites want to say, God is not just. You want to measure your goodness, your justice against God's? Because, because look again, God, God repeats the promise that if a, if a righteous man turns from his righteousness, if he, if he does evil, then he will die. But if a wicked man turns and does what is just and right, he will live by doing so. You see, God's answer is, I am a just God because I first punish sin, but more than that, I'm, I'm more than just, I'm merciful. If the wicked turn, then they will be forgiven. That's exactly the kind of justice you and I would want. Because God would be right to stop at verse 18, that the one who turns and does evil is punished. That would be justice. That would be enough to answer verse 17, the complaint that people bring. To merely point out that God punishes sin, but God does more than that. He has sent a prophet to issue a warning, to again plead with the people to turn from their sins. And so, verse 19, if a wicked man turns, if he turns from his wickedness, he does what is right, he will live. O house of Israel, you say the, the way of the Lord is not just. I will judge each of you according to his own ways. Judgment is still coming. And when you and I raise that question, how could God be good in the face of this? We actually have to wonder, on what basis am I making such a claim? If I doubt God's goodness or I doubt God is even there, then on what basis do I have? To say, this is, the, this is justice right here where I stand. Really, you want to answer verse 17 that, that your way is truly just? Really, you want, to, you want to stand on the assumption that, well, kind of the way I've cobbled together life and morality, everything that I think is right, that's what God should do? Well, God says, okay, we can play that game. I'll merely hold you up to your own substandards you won't even match up to those. You will be found guilty. And so when you and I, we can rightly plead to God to show us his love and mercy. But when you and I doubt God and accuse God of being unjust, then we've exposed ourselves to his justice We've ignored his grace and mercy, and yet the warning has been issued. The watchman stands. He says, turn, turn from your sins. Ezekiel is on the watchtower pointing toward the coming judgment. So today, turn. The warnings are issued. A tornado is on the ground, and military veteran Pete Ambrose is running a campground. He hears the warning and he realizes there are still campers without access to a warning, but they are in the path of the storm. He flags down drivers on the street to warn them. He, he drives his truck toward the tornado and finds the campers, and they are able to, to find safety in a cinder block restaurant. The danger is coming. 
Will you issue a warning? Will you hear the warning? Will you turn and repent? God says, as surely as I live, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their wicked ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the warning that your word brings. We thank you for the hope that we find in Jesus Christ, that our sins are placed on him so that his goodness, his perfect righteousness can be given to us. Father in heaven, we ask for those that sit here, having heard the warning that they would today repent, they would turn from sin, they would put their trust in Christ. And Lord, that you would push us forward as as a church, as followers of Christ, to issue that warning, to plead with friends and neighbors as ambassadors, as the, the watchmen who see your judgment. And yet, as your messengers who have been given the the glorious hope of reconciliation, that you are the God who forgives. And so, Lord, give us hope in the life that is ours through Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.